0: Hi, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. What movie are we watching today, Ben?
1: Uh, Well, we have a special treat this week. We are watching Unheimliche Geschichten, a German horror anthology film from 1919. The title translates to Eerie Stories.
0: Awesome. I I thought maybe it was about the Heimlich maneuver.
1: No, not quite. Uh, Not quite. (laughs) So this film came out in November of 1919. It's a German film directed by... Rickard Asphalt and starring Anita Berber, Reinhold Schusel, and Conrad Veidt. And Germany was in a very interesting place <laughs> oh in November gosh. of 1919.
0: It really was. So I, I did a little bit of research about Germany. The amount of information that our school system goes into about post-war Germany is the Versailles Treaty, and that's really it. And then Hitler happened.
1: Your, <laughs> I feel like we're going to learn a lot about the difference between your <laughs> social studies schooling in high school and mine. But what I can remember from high school is, yeah, they signed the Versailles Treaty, which was, like, extremely biased against them. Mm-hmm. They had to pay a ton of money out in war reparations to France. Uh, and that, that caused... Co- oh, uh, the... They went from having a Kaiser and, like, having a monarchy to being, like, a a democracy with, like, a constitutional republic. And having to pay all that money for war reparations in France and stuff, like, wrecked their economy and, like, sent their currency into, like, superinflation so that, like, a loaf of bread was, like, 50 grand or whatever. um, And that everyone was poor and terrible. And, yes, and then Hitler came and said it was all the Jews' fault.
0: So... What I've learned okay. is that the day after World War I ended, Germany was already a very terrible place to be. Um, I guess the Allies continued their naval blockade for Germany uh, and blocked off all imports, meaning that even before the Versailles Treaty happened, there was disease and starvation just all over Germany. There's, like, an estimate of within the first few months that, or at least the first year, that a quarter million and or more lost their lives due to starvation and disease because of the lack of importing that they could do for, like, food and everything. Then, of course, there's that Spanish influenza, which would not have helped anyone. Right. With 50 million people being killed worldwide, or dying worldwide. Yeah, and then, of course, like... Like, you mentioned having to pay back reparations, but that actually happened after the Republic was established. Mm. So, in the midst of all of this death and disease, Germany had a revolution from November 1918 to August 1919.
1: Okay, so from right after when the war ended to, like, summer of the next year. Yeah. Okay.
0: I think several months after this movie would have actually been released as well.
1: Yeah, this movie came out in November of 1919.
0: Okay, so the revolution ended two months before this movie came out. Yeah. So with this revolution, they replaced that imperial government with the Weimar Republic. (laughs) Things weren't good under the Republic. I'll just Mm -hmm. put it like that. There was a lot to go through, and I was like, wow, this is really bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But then in January 1919, the Social Democratic Party took power, in the Social Democratic Party taking power, they put in the Article Forty Eight, which allowed the uh, leader of the government to rule against majority decisions, which ultimately gave, is what gave Hitler power when he uh, eventually came to power. So yeah, that that's a whole lot of turmoil. Yes. In the midst of trying to make this movie. Yeah. Um, and you had like people across Germany, deciding that, no, this county is going to be its own republic, and lots of uh, mini-revolutions across these counties, and there was a lot of stuff going on. It was even in this early time that there was starting to be propaganda about against the Versailles Treaty coming up, and propaganda for finding a scapegoat for all of this awfulness happening in the country.
1: Yeah, because, I mean you know, you go from being like a big world power, you fight this devastating war that kills, you know, a massive number of your, you know, best and brightest. The aftermath of that war is that your entire government collapses, and there's a revolution and a whole new government and a whole new system of governing comes in. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the economy collapses, you've got starvation and disease, you know, you've got basically a perfect melting pot for people to just be angry and resentful about their lot in life. And yeah, if you can harness a scapegoat, you can do a lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, what was kind of interesting, and this might be a bit of a side note to talking about eerie stories, but the party that took power was the Social Democratic Party, but like the Communist Party was vying for power, and like, you had all of these really very different parts, parties coming from different ideologies. Um, and it was just really interesting to just like read up a little bit, not even get into like the nitty gritty of this.
1: There's a, a very old and still pretty prominent film theory that the prevalence and popularity of horror cinema in 1920s Germany compared to say 1920s America has large part to do with the end of World War I and that period of turmoil and that period of, you know, not knowing what was going to happen next and this period of resentment and all the sort of stuff leading up into the rise of um, fascism in Germany. Yeah. You know, whereas in America, which won the war and wasn't super threatened or even involved or invested to a huge degree and had a big economic boom afterwards, you know, the movies that you got in the 20s were, you know, comedies and lighthearted and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, we'll see how much of that turmoil we see reflected in the film or whether it doesn't come across at all, I don't know, but definitely the people who made this film had lives that were certainly affected by the changing political turmoil in Germany at the time and later down the road.
0: Well, as soon as I, I read that there was to starvation and disease across the country. I was like, oh, horror movies seem... The idea of a horror movie with like grotesque imagery would, would tie in with that.
1: Hmm. The director of Eerie Stories was Richard Oswald. Uh, he was Austrian and was a very prolific director in this period. He owned his own production company, and this was his seventh feature-length film. Uh, he had already done a horror movie three years earlier, in 1916 uh, Negde des Grounds, um which is the earliest known feature film to portray vampires but unfortunately uh, we couldn't find a copy of that film for the podcast it might be lost or it might just never have received a home video release um, Oswald's most f- notable film Anders Els de Andern had come out earlier in 1919 Uh, Earlier this same year. And that movie had been funded by the Institute for Sexual Science. It was the first film to portray homosexuals sympathetically, and it was intended as a protest film against the German laws of the time that criminalized homosexuality, uh, which um, those laws were not repealed until
0: 1994.
1: Wow. Um, The film was highly controversial. And within a year, it had been censored so that copies were only available to medical researchers and uh, doctors and other academics for private screenings. Um, eventually, when the Nazis came to power, it was burned and destroyed as an example of the decadence of the Weimar Republic. Um, and a copy was only recently rediscovered and screened last year. Uh, now, that film uh, starred Konrad Veit who is also in Eerie Stories. Weit mm-hmm. uh, had been a soldier for the German army in World War I and contracted jaundice and pneumonia during the war. And while recovering, he had fallen in love with a young actress. Uh, the relationship didn't last, but when the war ended, Veit uh, was intrigued enough about the profession to decide to try his hand at it. <laughs> Eerie Stories was his eighth film, and his fourth working with Asphalt. He had debuted on screen in the horror film Foigt in 1917, uh, which we also did not cover on the list, because although prints of it are known to exist, it has never been released on home video in any form, uh, so we couldn't cover that film either. The other primary actors in Eerie Stories are also very well-known and popular individuals. Uh, Reinhold Schützel uh, was a huge star, very very popular, to the degree that the Nazis granted him the title Honorary Aryan despite his Jewish heritage and allowed him to keep working during their regime. So that's how popular Reinhold was. Uh, and then the um, female lead in this film, Anita Berber, she was 20 years old when she appeared in this film, and was already a famous nude dancer in cabarets. She'd been... As you do. Right. She'd been dancing since she was a teenager. Um, her androgynous appearance, nude performances, open bisexuality, and heavy addiction to cocaine, Opium, morphine, chloroform, and ether made her a famous symbol of Berlin decadence at the time, uh, and she was even immortalized in a 1925 painting by Otto Dix.
0: Wow. Did she do those, all of those drugs at the same time? No,
1: but she did do the chloroform and ether at the same time in a mixture in rosewater. Yeesh. Yeah. She died in 1928. <laughs> From? Liver failure. surrounded by morphine syringes oh dear meanwhile while Reinhold Schutzel managed to get the honorary Aryan title uh, both Richard Oswald and Conrad Veit ended up fleeing Germany in the early 30s for America due to their Jewish heritages so uh, the film is a horror anthology, meaning that it is made up of several short stories, which all have literary short story bases. Um, Do we want to talk a little bit about those before we start the flick?
0: Yeah. So the short stories that are taken as inspiration for the stories in, in the anthology film is Enselm Hines' The Apparition, Robert Liebman's The Hand, Poe, of course, uh, and his short story The Black Cat, which we haven't seen adapted so far. Robert Louis Stevenson, The Suicide Club, and Richard Oswald's The Haunting. Good luck if you want to look up what some of these short stories are about, because I could only find stuff on Poe and uh, Stevenson. I could look up Robert Liebman, he's a German screenwriter, but I couldn't find anything about his short story The Hand. Um, the Black Cat by Poe is about this man murdering his wife and then feeling guilt about it because it, the, the black cat won't go near him, and eventually the murder is found out because of the black cat. Okay. Stevenson's The Suicide Club is actually um, a collection of stories in itself. Oh. It's three stories, and it's kind of like a detective story, and by the end, those three cases come together.
1: So is it like the, um, is it like, are you afraid of the dark? Like, is the Suicides (laughs) Club, like, a group that meets to talk about suicide stories?
0: No. (laughs) Um, it follows this detective as he solves these cases. Okay. And it's this detective and his friend... It seemed like a Sherlock Holmes kind of ripoff thing. Okay. And what I could find about it, just trying to like summarize what it was all about, it wasn't quite clear what the suicide club was besides a club of people who would want to kill themselves.:
1: That's a short-lived club.
0: Exactly. So I don't understand why that would be a club. Sure. Or why that would be set up as a premise. Mm -hmm. I know how it's adapted into eerie stories is this detective comes across the Suicide Club. The club itself is organized around getting other people to commit suicide. Okay. So, like, late 1800s doxing groups, I guess.
1: Whoa. (laughs) All right.
0: And because the detective comes across this club, uh, he's chosen as their next victim. I see. And then the last short story, Richard Oswald's The Haunting, could not find any information about. So
1: all. that sounds like that's Richard Oswald, the director of the film. Oh. So it sounds like he just threw in his own story into I mean, the mix.
0: You know, sometimes you can't just have four stories. You need to have five. It's a horror movie. You need to have an an odd number.
1: Gotcha. Odd numbers are unsettling.
0: Exactly. Um, yeah. So I have no idea what that will be. I I assume a haunting.
1: Right. But that's all. That's fair.
0: Yeah. For people who want to watch at home, Ben, where where can people find this? Where are we watching it from?
1: Uh, so, um, eerie stories, unfortunately, has never seen a home video release in North America. Uh, There is a DVD release of it that is Region 2 and can play on region-free DVD players. And I think it even has English subtitles for the German intertitles, but it is a Region 2 DVD. So someone has uploaded it to YouTube because as a film made before 1923, it is in the public domain. I don't really know what the quality is like of the YouTube upload, that's always a bit up in the air, but that's probably going to be the easiest place if you'd like to watch this film along with us.
0: Great! So, uh, you're going to hear a short musical interlude, and when we come back we'll talk about the movie. We'll see you on the other side. Mm So just a heads up, we're just going to include a trigger warning for domestic violence and some mild animal violence in the movie, but we look forward to you listening to the discussion afterwards.
1: Welcome back! Uh, We just finished watching Unheimliche Geschichten and I would like to take this opportunity to say that before the break we had been translating that title as Eerie Stories, but if you want to find the film on YouTube, you should be looking for Eerie Tales. Not really a big difference in meaning there, but certainly a big difference in search engines.
0: (laughs) So what did you think of the film?
1: I thought it was pretty good. I think the main thing I noticed was You know, the the last film we watched for the podcast was from 1914. And what a difference five years makes.
0: In terms of what?
1: In terms of cinematic techniques, you know, filmmaking, sophistication. I mean, here we've got, you know, shot variety. We've got close-ups. We've got a development of acting style. You know, I mean, this is still a little bit over the top for maybe a modern audience's palette. But uh, it's a lot closer to, like, you know, what I would consider, like, the classic era of silent film. You know, these guys seem to all know how to act and know what they're doing. And and the main thing that's, like, the most important for horror films as a genre is this movie has lighting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it had some really interesting lighting techniques in there.
1: Yeah, you've got shadowed figures with uh, edge lighting coming through windows. You've got You know, the use of dark and shadow and playing with light and playing with darkness and all those things that are so essential to making the atmosphere of a film have that kind of scary, horrifying, terrifying vibe that we just didn't have in the previous films we've watched which have all just basically been flat wash, 100% lit.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I actually really enjoyed this film. I'm not sure where it fits on the list, but we can talk about that later. But through these five different stories um, six if you want to count the framing device as its own separate thing, it kind of set the mood in the beginning and, like, really took us through and then had this nice palette cleanser at the end.
1: Do you want to walk people through kind of the frame narrative in each of the five stories just in a basic sense as we kind of talk about everything?
0: Yeah. So to give folks an overview of the what the film was like, it had this framing device of being set in this rare bookstore and at night these three paintings of the devil, a prostitute, and death come alive and they terrorize the shopkeeper a little bit and then start reading some of the books and laugh at like what's going on in these horror stories. It was really funny to see, uh, like our three main actors, Anita Berber, Conrad Wright, and Reinhold Schünzel, were playing the three portrait characters and then we're playing like the three main people in each of the short stories. It was really fun.
1: Yeah, it was sort of interesting because they use all three of these actors in every single one of the stories and you've got Veit and Schunzel, and you've got Berber. It has the odd effect of turning almost all of the stories into love triangles. Mm -hmm. There's one that isn't, but all the rest of them are structured as love triangles. Uh, You know, and Conrad Veidt gets to be the hero, quote-unquote, in, like, three out of five, and then he's the villain in the other two, but he's always opposing Reinhold Schünzel, And uh, it's sort of interesting to see these three people go through these different iterations of being the three main characters in every single one of the shorts.
0: Yeah, it was neat to see their range of acting, because I think there was a range there, even as much as it was overacting for the style.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... Most of the segments have at least one or two effectively scary moments. You know, some of the segments are definitely better than others. And it was sort of interesting to see the quality difference because they're all the same director. Um, Mm. A lot of times when you get anthology films like this, you have different directors doing different little shorts and putting them together. This is all one crew, one director doing all the segments, but there was still this kind of unevenness.
0: Yeah. So the first one that we saw was The Apparition, which was very interesting. It was kind of structured like a mystery story, and it's based off that uh, short story by Anselm Hines, also we called The Apparition. So this follows uh, Anita Berber. She's escaped from her husband. Reinhold, because he he tried to kill her and so they got a divorce, but but he keeps following her everywhere because that's not the creepiest thing.
1: And Reinhold plays this guy like...
0: Spot on creepy.
1: Crazy with a capital C. I mean, he's got this horrible greasy comb over and these wide eyes and just like going around like the creepiest...
0: It's like prototype Peter Laurie,
1: yeah, a little bit. It's that sort of archetype. he's really unsettling, yeah, and he's just following her everywhere the The story starts with her like accosting her in a park, and she just like at one point just punches him straight in the face <laughs> uh, and then it's Conrad, a great start. yeah, and then Conrad Veidt is this handsome young man who comes and kind of saves her and takes her away to this hotel where they're going to stay at for uh some romance
0: <laughs> at one point, like she disappears over overnight and it's implied that like the the film kind of structures it so you think that the husband did away with her and the hotel staff are trying to help cover it up but in actuality she died from the plague overnight Uh, the hotel is still trying to cover it up and the husband had nothing to do with it but I had a feeling it was like so when we see the cause for their divorce This is why I included that domestic violence trigger warning.
1: I mean, it it pops up a few times in this movie.
0: But he, he puts a noose around her neck and tries to kill her. She gets out and is okay and escapes the marriage. But because she has the plague and they say like we couldn't let her know and we couldn't tell anyone she had the plague, it felt like in his own weird mind for this character, he was... Trying to do, like, a mercy killing, maybe?
1: Oh, weird. I didn't really pick that up so much. I did think that the segment was um, effectively unsettling Mm -hmm. in the sense that the way that the story gets structured is he brings her to this hotel, and we see, after they arrive, we see the husband arrive at the hotel, creeping up after them. And then Conrad Veidt goes out for, like, I don't know, it's, like, drinks and cards or something with old friends, and then when he comes back to the hotel, he's like, oh, I'm going to visit my lady friend. And he goes to her room, and it's like... Trash. Yeah, just like utterly trashed. And he's freaks out because he's like... The audience is meant to be thinking like, oh, the husband got there and killed her or something. And he, he freaks out, and he goes back to his room, and he kind of calms himself down by going like, oh, I must have had the wrong room. Yeah. So the next morning, he's like, hey, take me to that, that room... And he goes in, and there's no one there, and it looks fine. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Hey, where's the lady who stays here?" And the hotel stuff, are like, "What lady?"
0: You arrived here alone.
1: Right, and he's like, "What?" And like he thinks he's going crazy because they all deny her ever existing. He goes to the police station, and they're like ready for him, mm-hmm. which is weird. I thought it was going to be like they were covering it up for the husband. You know that the husband murdered her and then paid everyone off to like cover it up because the police are like yeah you arrived there alone nothing happened but then the husband arrives at the police station and attacks Conrad Veidt and then after Conrad Veidt gets away the police are like yeah your wife never existed to like the husband
0: (laughs) yeah yeah it was very strange I I was also thinking so before the the break I gave kind of an overview of what Germany was looking like with starvation and disease all across the land before mm-hmm. this revolution. Mm-hmm. And they do say specifically say plague in the movie, but between like starvation and disease, the spanish influenza, it seemed like a very real possibility that this could happen to someone.
1: Right. I wasn't 100% sure like why. I guess they would cover it up because they don't want people to think the hotel is infected. Like they don't want to lose business. That's the thing. And then I was a little bit confused by the ending where Conrad Veidt learns the truth because like this rando guy just walks up to him on the street and is like, here's what happened. And then he
0: bribes that guy. Who's that guy? He was with a, a carriage. Like, maybe someone who works at the hotel, like okay. a, a staff member or something. But he does pay him off to, like, get the information.
1: Okay. I was very confused because I didn't know who that character was supposed to be. So it just sort of felt like the movie ends with this character just coming up and being like, hey, here's what happened, and then explaining it, and then the end. That makes a little more sense. I was having a hard time piecing together the the motivations and the sequence of events and stuff, but mm-hmm. that makes more sense now.
0: And then with Conrad Veidt... Fainting at the end, mm-hmm. he seems to like faint because he's like, what? Mm. Like this is what happened. But he he was getting pretty like up in a business, and so it, it seemed to imply that now he has the plague as well.
1: Oh sure, yeah. I didn't I didn't catch that either. That's a good point.
0: Yeah, and that's why it was like. Very real possibility, very real problem that folks in Germany were probably facing, and that's why it would would have been like. Besides the way that the lighting was done and the way that the implication for the husband was done, and like the the scariness through that, the scariness was also now you're infected and you're going to die.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, definitely, it was the lighting that I noticed in this piece, mm-hmm. um, and the uh, the probably the most. You know, the standout segment is when he goes back to her place in the night and it's all wrecked and he starts freaking out it's a great performance by conrad veit there's there's really good really all three of the actors who are in every segment in this movie <laughs> uh all three of them are great um and they all do good work although some shine more than others in certain segments um but conrad veit is great in this first one and so even as uh, anita barber she's not in a lot of it but you know what she is and she's very effective at playing the role that she's given
0: mm-hmm definitely so the next one is the hand which I found very spooky and was really well done so these two rivals in love <laughs> He's uh, two jerks <laughs> Uh, they, they want to marry Anita Berber, and to decide who will get her, because she has to choose one of them. Right. Despite she her being very friendly with every gentleman yeah. in this club. They roll some dice, and it's like, whoever gets the highest number out of these dice gets the girl. And, uh, it's a great little scene between our two heroes, or quote-unquote heroes. Our
1: two, our two protagonists, let's say. Uh,
0: and Veit wins, and as he's like, ha ha ha, I won, and pouring himself a drink, uh, Reinhold chokes him out, and it, it's like... It giggle. goes
1: on forever.
0: I giggled through it, but it was really effective, it was really good.
1: Conrad Veidt gives so. an absurdly over-the-top death scene as he slowly dies getting choked out by this guy, and, and he... The, the big deal is that his hands sort of contort into these rictus shapes mm. um, that kind of freak out. For the um, viewer. Sure. I was gonna, the dude. Yeah, I was going to say freak out Reinhold, Um Because he kind of takes off all f- scared. And then we just kind of cut to like a few years later, and he's...
0: He's clearly left the girl alone, because mm. he just killed someone out of rage. Mm-hmm. And like no haunting... Up until now. And then he meets the girl again. And they start dating. She
1: invites him to see her ballet performance. Yes. Which is a weird, a very weird ballet performance. It's <laughs> kind of like ballet, but like, I think it was... Like
0: contemporary dance, more like. Yeah,
1: it had a contemporary dance feel, totally. Like it had a postmodernist like... <laughs> kind of, what am I expressing through the dance kind of thing. I guess it was, it's there because Anita Barber was most famous as a cabaret dancer, so it
0: makes sense that they give her... A dance scene. Yeah. But that's when Conrad Veidt starts to haunt him in, like, these really neat ways of, like, the hand coming out and, like, it, it, all the special effects are done with fade-ins and fade-outs.
1: The hand definitely has the most special effects of any of the segments, I would think.
0: yeah. After the performance, and the dude's thoroughly freaked out, uh, she takes him back to her place with two other guys to have a seance, as <laughs> you do. Right.
1: Uh, as, I, as I think
0: it's because she's suspicious. She I think did it's come just, across the body after. I
1: suppose. I. I also just get the impression from, like, various things I've read over the years that seances was just what people did in the turn <laughs> of the century. Like, it was like, you know, instead of... Let's go back to my place and, like, watch some Seinfeld or whatever. Like, people (laughs) were like, let's go back to my place and have a seance. Like, it was just the activity that people did.
0: Seance and chill?
1: Right, exactly. Yes, that's exactly it. Yep.
0: Yeah, and then Conrad Veidt shows up as, like, this black silhouette in the back and just, like, chokes out Reinhold and just, yeah, kills him in revenge but I thought it was really cool and really well done. And when uh, Anita goes over to his dead body to see what's happened, Mm -hmm. um, he has, like, finger marks on his neck, Mm -hmm. which was a nice touch. Uh, So, yeah, I found that one very spooky. I really enjoyed all of it, um, even the at-times overacting.
1: Yeah, it really, what what helps the theatricality of the acting is that, This segment, like the last, even maybe to a greater degree, is lit so dramatically. Mm -hmm. You know, just just silhouettes and shadows and bright lights and shafts of light and things like that. And the theatricality of the lighting really allows for the more pronounced acting style. Um, The thing that I kind of questioned about this segment is that it's called The Hand. Because I feel like what's supposed to be happening is, you know, Reinhold sees Conrad's rigor mortis hand and it freaks him out. And then all the other times that Conrad kind of haunts him, it starts with the hand, like his hand, you know, opening a curtain or they're doing the seance and everyone's got their hands on the table and there's an extra hand on the table and it's Conrad's (laughs) or whatever. But then it quickly becomes the hand as attached to the rest of Conrad, you know, and we see Conrad and there's a Bit where Reinhold goes to a window and Conrad's face is there in the window, super huge. And I feel like there maybe wasn't as much focus on the hand as the title kind of implies there will be. And I'm not sure if that's just because they were reluctant to lose Conrad Veidt's, like, screen presence at his face. Because he does have...
0: Quite the presence.
1: Yeah, he does have <laughs> quite the face. He's, uh, if you've never seen a Conrad Veidt movie, he's the Joker just in real life.
0: <laughs> no kidding. How did we describe it earlier? Uh devilishly charming, but with extra emphasis on the devil.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, you you're Connor invites the kind of guy where you are terrified of him despite your clear arousal.
0: <laughs> so then the next one was The Black Cat. Um so this is the one that's adapted from Poe's short story The Black Cat.
1: And it felt like they were trying to kind of give it a period like, American setting, too. Like, the first two segments were just kind of, like, amorphously set in a general time. They could have been contemporary to Germany of the time. But, like, this one, everyone's dressed in, like, old-timey clothes, and, like, I just got a sense that they were trying to... It wasn't necessary to the story, but they were trying to set it whenever Poe wrote it.
0: hmm I would agree with that. What's kind of neat about this story is... It's one of Poe's short stories that are, is explicitly against alcoholism. like. Sure. Yeah.
1: I can see that, yeah.
0: Um, and that they definitely included in this adaptation, but I don't see... there's no supernatural element to this.
1: Um, yeah, it's just kind of a straight story. There isn't even really, like, a mystery. It just yeah. kind of... we're just told a story. In Poe's version, was there Conrad Veidt's part? Like, this love triangle element?
0: Uh, I can't say for sure.
1: Okay. Because like...
0: Because what's supposed to be the whole thing with the black cat? So in the segment, um, the black cat reveals where uh, the wife's body is hidden because the dudes plastered up a new wall and accidentally plastered up the cat in there too and the cat breaks out just as people are searching the basement. In the short story, the cat actually leads them to... Mm. The thing—the cat gets revenge against the husband Mm. for the wife, basically.
1: I wonder if they just couldn't train a cat well enough to do what they
0: wanted it to do. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's also, again, Conrad Wright's character basically had the role of the black cat. Right. Like, hey, a murder happened here. Hey, let's go search this place. Hey, let's search the basement.
1: Yeah, like, that's the thing is, like, again, we have a segment called the black cat, and there's not enough black cat in it. I mean, this one, so, for... Anyone who like isn't familiar with Poe's story or the segment, essentially Conrad Veidt is drinking at a bar, and some guys tell him that uh, Reinhold Schunzel's wife is super hot, and Reinhold is just a ridiculous drunk. Mm. Uh, he goes home, Reinhold that is, and he has a wife, Anita Berber, and she has this black cat that she's always hanging out with. And the thing that did impress me here was Anita Berber's performance because. Uh, Reinhold plays his part, I don't want to say comedic, but very broadly in terms of just being like a, a super broad caricature of a drunk, but from Anita's performance, we can tell that he's abusive. Yeah. We don't really see a lot of it. Like we, we We don't see
0: it against the cat.
1: Right. But we don't like see any extended sequences of him like beating her up or whatever. Even
0: her death is off screen.
1: Exactly. But every time they're on screen together, she kind of shrinks from him when he is around her. She feels, she seems like she's terrified of him all the time. And that really sells the idea that like, oh, there's clearly something, you know, very wrong with this relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, So then Conrad Veidt gets himself invited back to their place after like the bar closes I think his plan is he's going to try and get Reinhold so drunk that he passes out so that he can just go and fuck his wife in his house. Which, like, that's a terrible plan, Conrad. So, of course, Reinholdt wakes up and, like, it's, there's nothing really very explicit because, you know, like, you feel like if this movie was made today, like, he would have walked in on them, like, having sex. But here he just kind of, like, wakes up in time to see Conrad Veidt, like, kissing her on the cheek. Yeah, and that's enough for him to kick Conrad right out of the house, take this cat out of uh, his wife's arms, and he grabs it by like the scruff of the neck and kicks it off camera. And then he grabs Anita Berber and just tosses her off screen, and that—that's the end of her. He—he well,
0: he throws beer mugs.
1: Right. Yeah. She and, dies like, from. Chair maybe. Or... She dies from having beer mugs thrown at her. Like Anita Berber gets denied <coughs> the opportunity to have an absurdly over-the-top death scene like Conrad Veidt did.
0: Her acting as he's dragging her down the stairs though is really good. <laughs> I would not be comfortable with someone who, maybe he's acting, but clearly looks like he's struggling to carry you downstairs.
1: Yeah, so he carries her down to the cellar, buries her, he amontillados her in the cellar, and we don't see it happen. This is the thing that bothered me about this. Yeah, that's on like, screen too. We, we don't see him put her in the thing. We don't see what happens. And so we don't actually know that the cat is in there with her until
0: the reveal. Well, he comments, where's where's the cat? cat?
1: Yeah. And then Conrad Vite shows up with the police and is like, this guy killed his wife. Let's search the place. And they search the basement and the cat pokes its head out of the badly put together wall. And they're like, oh, here's the wife. It just felt like a segment to me that had a lot of, like, lapses and could have been a lot better.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely.
1: Um, like, the shots and the lighting even were more pedestrian in this one. Like, the, the scenes in Reinhold's apartment felt like the Honeymooners. Like, it was that kind of shot, you know, <laughs> where it was just this very standard kind of shooting style.
0: Yeah, it felt like a stage. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the Suicide Club? That was the next segment.
1: Oh, yeah. So, Suicide Club... We, ma-
0: we finally figured out what a Suicide Club is.
1: Right, The Suicide Club made no sense. (laughs) Uh, It it succeeded almost entirely on mood and atmosphere and cinematic technique. In terms of actual plot, it was nonsense. Like, I get what happened. It's not hard to understand, but, like, it doesn't make any sense.
0: I think because in order for you... Uh, in order for an audience to understand what's going on, you need that twist at the end that he's the police commissioner. Mm. I think it would have helped, too, if he had seen what was on the piece of paper he found that led him to investigate the building. Right,
1: yeah. The, I kept the,
0: expecting, like, an intertitle showing us because there was so much attention to it.
1: This is the thing about... There were a lot of segments in this movie that I felt were missing intertitles. Because there was a lot of moments in all of the segments where I kind of felt like I was a little lost about what was supposed to be happening, and then I would kind of figure it out eventually, just from context clues, but I feel like, you know, we were missing a dialogue in her title or something, just saying what's going on.
0: So the version we saw on YouTube, it did have some info at the beginning that um, some parts of the film were lost, so I wonder if that's part of it. Hmm. Perhaps. So, uh, for the listeners who are curious about what the heck we're talking about, The Suicide Club is, um, the segment where Reinhold plays, uh, this detective that we don't know is a detective. Um, he finds a piece of paper on the ground by this house that's supposed to be vacant and he's suspicious. So he spies and sees people in the house, he goes in and finds out it's a suicide club. Basically, every night they meet and if you pull a certain card out of the deck, uh, you're getting killed that night. But it's kind of like a, a thrill-seekers club.
1: Right, there's will. there's one dude at the table who's like, I've been here two years, and I've never drawn the eighths of spades. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the one where the roles get to reverse, because Reinhold's the hero, and Conrad Veidt is the... Leader of the club. The leader of the club, and he's got his his hair is slicked back and, and white, and he's got his big black eye shadow going on, and (laughs) he's just getting, he's got a black ascot in his suit, and he's getting to be villainous.
0: Yeah, it was pretty great. Uh, (laughs) Um, And then Anita, unfortunately, is just the sister and is in two scenes.
1: Yeah, she's got a very minor role. I feel like she's only there so that she's there. Yeah. Because Reinhold gets into the club, and she just kind of shows up from nowhere and is like, this club is bad! And then Vite has like a couple goons take her out of the room, and that's about it.
0: Yeah, it it seemed like the way that it was a horror film was I can't believe this is happening, like the absurdity of it all. On
1: it's nightmarish, yeah. and that was the thing that made it work. Was the most effective sequence in this one is Reinhold draws the ace of spades, and again, like I feel like we were missing an insert saying that that was the card. Because he draws the card, and he reacts, and you understand that it's the wrong card, but there's no, like, close-up, uh, so it's a little confusing. But Vite explains that at midnight, he's gonna die, um, and then he just leaves the room and leaves Reinholdt alone in the room, and the rest of the segment is just Reinhold like, freaking out, trying to figure out what he can do, and then finally the clock strikes twelve, and he dies... And Conrad Veidt shows up again and is like, aha, his fear is what killed him. And it's like, oh, what, a, what an ironic twist ending. <laughs> and then Reinhold gets up, is like, actually, I'm the police commissioner and you're all under arrest. And it's like, oh, what a more ironic twist ending. <laughs> but it's, how does this club work? Why would you join this club? How does Conrad Veidt have buttons on his desk that, like, secure you to a chair and then just kill you? Like, oh, it just... If you were the police commissioner and you're here to like arrest the suicide club, like you're not Sherlock Holmes, you're the police commissioner. Like get a bunch of police and raid the darn joint. But he
0: didn't know what was going on in there, right? I guess. It all happened within his first visit there.
1: I guess it was just it was effective, but it was a little bit like what?
0: I don't know. I I found it really fun. It had like the suspense. It had the thriller aspect, um, and the clock. That was set in the back. Throughout the entire scene, as they're drawing cards, you could see the clock hands moving closer to 12. It started at 9, and then by the time that he drew the card, it was 10. And then they actually showed close-ups of the clock hands moving up to 10, 12. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I enjoyed it.
1: The clock imagery was definitely very effective, and uh, I do agree that the suspense was well handled.
0: Mm-hmm. What about the last one? The title card said it was called "The Specter." We introduced it in the beginning of the episode as "The Haunting."
1: It was. And this was
0: written by the director.
1: Yes, this is the director's own entry. <laughs> um, it's written in verse. Yeah. It's a poem, which immediately made me go like, "Oh well, <laughs> somebody thinks they're clever." It was the weakest entry in the movie. I was really disappointed by it. I did not enjoy it i i get what it was trying to do it's not horror it's a comedy it's uh a funny it's more like those meliez shorts that we watched several episodes ago it's trying to lighten up the proceedings after all the previous entries so that you walk out of the movie not disturbed you walk out of the movie with like a smile on your face but i think that's just a mistake yeah i think like it's a shame that this movie goes out with a whimper instead of a bang like I think, you know, if you're doing an anthology, like, you know, it's like, if you're a stand-up comedian, you put your funniest joke at the end. And if you're doing a horror anthology movie like this, you should put the scariest segment at the end. You know, your big finale. Instead, we get this thing that's very repetitive and obvious. You know, even the bits where it's trying to be quote-unquote scary are just real cheap gags. Um, Yeah. I don't know, what did you think?
0: So I I felt like it was a palate cleanser, kind of like how you said. The setting reminded me of gothic horror stuff, um, because it's set in like this castle. This knight comes in. Oh, he's injured. But it it wasn't. They were doing a comedy. Yeah. From the acting, from the the fact that it was a, a poem uh the french aristocratic setting was totally out of nowhere like that's, it was a comedy
1: that's the thing like it it can't even be gothic horror because um they set it in the era of powdered wigs and puffy shirts yeah and you can never take anyone seriously with the powdered wigs and the puffy shirts like nothing can ever be scary when the people reacting to it are dressed in that french aristocratic style with the fake beauty marks and everything it's it just renders them inherently ridiculous
0: yeah so I think they were going for a spoopy kind of feel Mm -hmm. right with like oh the paintings are moving on their own or like oh there's people in big black cloaks that are like clearly the servants
1: you know the the story is that Anita Berber in this one she's married to Conrad Veidt finally But
0: he's neglectful.
1: He's neglectful, yeah. So she's itching for some attention. And when this injured knight comes in, it's going to be her chance. And the injured knight's Reinhold. And they start flirting. And then spoopy stuff happens in the room. With all, you know, things moving on their own and whatnot. And uh, Reinhold gets afraid and runs away. And then Conrad Veidt shows up and is like, I'm the best. And then (laughs) they make out the end.
0: (laughs) Well, he... There is a scene where Conrad Wright is like, Hey, servants, while I'm gone on this fake emergency, scare them and show her what kind of guy this act- this knight actually is. Mm-hmm. Because her whole thing is like, oh, he's so courageous. And he's like, no, he's not. Look how scared he is. But I'm here, girl. Stick he do- with your husband.
1: <laughs> he does have a funny line about the guy being clearly brave because he's brave enough to flirt with his wife, which uh, the husband never does. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. That was funny. But like... I feel like this segment would have been more effective if they'd Scooby-Doo'd it, where if it had been legitimately scary, you know, we think there there really is a ghost or whatever, until the ending when, you know, the husband pops out and is like, ha-ha, it was all a trick. And then, you know, the ending could be a funny little palate cleanser, oh, nothing was actually wrong moment. But the fact that it's kind of ridiculous all the way through and it's a full-length segment like the others just made it really tiresome for me.
0: Yeah, I think you're right that it could have been more effective as a Scooby-Doo thing. I started to question why this was in the movie. Because all throughout, everything's been pretty, you know, in varying degrees, a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And then we have this comedy at the end. And I I started thinking back to Germany in, like, (laughs) 1918, 1919, with a revolution ending two months prior to this movie's release, with, like... Death and disease everywhere, with like an uncertain future, ending on a comedy after like scaring the the bejesus out of people. Maybe they they wanted to make to have like some entertainment to make them forget about what's outside of the theater. Like I guess
1: I think it, it's tough because it's the last segment. And the last segment's like what you think about as you walk away from a movie, right? And I I definitely agree that that was their intent. That their intent was to give you this respite as the last thing. The problem is is that it sucks. Like, that it's not a good segment, right? Like, it doesn't measure up to the other segments in quality. Yeah. And the fact that it's the director's, like, own segment.
0: You know, you, you look at things as bookends, right? We have the very first one, The Apparition, being a tale about this woman having the plague and now you're infected, and that being a very real problem. And then ending with this very fantastical segment.
1: Right. The, the, yeah. That we've ended the story with just something that's so far removed from anything that anyone could care about. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think, I don't know, I'm just thinking, because the audience is in on the joke that the things that are happening on screen aren't scary. hmm Right? So it's as if we're supposed to be laughing at the people who are scared. right? So I wonder if there's if he's saying something about horror films in general or about like being afraid. I
1: mean, I don't know. I think that like if that's the case, then he's ended his movie with a segment that invalidates the entire rest of the movie up to that point, which hmm. to me, like, kind of isn't a good decision.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would have still gotten that effect of like a palate cleanser without invalidating things if it had been, like you said, a Scooby-Doo ending.
1: Yeah, and I think that would have been a lot easier to take uh, at the end of this film. Otherwise, this last segment is just kind of hard to sit through.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, Conrad Wright doesn't even look attractive in that wig. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, do we want to rank this movie? Sure. Did you have any other thoughts on it?
0: Well, I was curious which of the five stories... hmm you found the most scary?
1: Ooh, um, probably a toss-up for me between The Apparition and The Hand. Mm -hmm. Those are, you know, the movie starts real strong, in my opinion, with those. Um, The Apparition I really like because it manipulates information. One of the things that I always find scary is not knowing what's going on, not knowing why stuff is happening, that nightmare feeling where you walk through a door and the room that you're in now is not the room you expected to be in, you know? And you and everybody seems to be acting like nothing's wrong, even though you know something is. You know, that to me is a really terrifying feeling. The hand's super scary too, does a good job, but in the hand we know what's frightening. You killed a dude and his ghost is haunting you, right? The apparition plays with not knowing really what's going on, and Conrad Veidt isn't sure if he's going mad or not. And it's just, in those scenes where we don't have the answer yet, it's so effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, I think I'd give it to The Apparition, actually. I would agree. So it was all downhill from there.
0: Uh, downhill's the wrong term. <laughs> cool. Yeah, let's, uh, let's rank this.
1: It's going to be a little bit hard to rank this film because it's an anthology. Mm. But it is a single piece. And we should rank it, you know, as a single piece. Definitely. Mostly because there's so many anthology films, horror anthology films, that if we rank these as separate things, we're going to have to do that for all of them. And it's just (laughs) going to get ridiculous. Yeah. So right now, we have The Student of Prague as our number one film. And last week's movie, The Avenging Conscience, sits at number five. Okay. Was this better than The Avenging Conscience?
0: I was trying to think about which one was more effective, which one was tighter in how it was trying to tell its story. And I I had a real hard time with it. Um, But I do think it's better than The Avenging Conscience.
1: I think that Eerie Tales has the advantage that, because its segments are short stories, it doesn't mess around as much as Avenging Conscience does, would have a tendency to go off on tangents and waste your time. Mm. with subplots and characters that were completely unnecessary. Both movies kind of end with bizarre detours into comedy, <laughs> but at least Eerie Tales had a rationale and a structure in place to allow that, whereas Avenging Conscience just goes off into pan land for no reason for <laughs> ten minutes at the end. Yeah. So I, I do think that Eerie Tales is better. Uh, The question is how much better. Above Avenging Conscience we have the 1912 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and above that we have Frankenstein.
0: I believe the reason Frankenstein is up that far is because of how effective it was but also because of its special effects Mm -hmm. which I think are better than the special effects in Eerie Tales.
1: But Eerie Tales' special effects aren't trying to do as much. You know, Frankenstein was trying to build a man from nothing. Eerie Tales doesn't use a lot of special effects. It really just has them in the hand for some ghost stuff. Everything else is assembled out of, you know, the way the film is edited, the way the film is shot, the way the film is lit. It's eerie. Um,
0: Maybe that's why that it's called Eerie Tales.
1: Sure. Um, But, you know, it's not as effects-heavy. Above Frankenstein is The Sealed Room, and above The Sealed Room is Student of Prague.
0: It... It should not be anywhere near Steamed of Frog, in my opinion.
1: Okay. But is it better than The Sealed Room, then? Mm. And this is the thing, is, again, the problem becomes that Eerie Tales is an anthology. Would I rank The Apparition above The Sealed Room? Yes. Would I rank The Spectre above The Sealed Room? No. But if I'm taking them all together, where do I put them? (laughs) I think the advantage that Eerie Tales has above almost everything we've watched so far is the acting. Conrad Veidt is great.
0: The acting in The Student of Prague is also very good.
1: That's true. That's true. I mean, Scapinelli was fantastic.
0: Yeah. Like, everyone in that movie was fantastic.
1: Okay. So what are you thinking? I'm thinking it could go as high as number two on the list and as low as number four on the list.
0: I am thinking it's better than, than The Sealed Room because yeah. of its usage of lighting and the fact that it had over-the-top acting, but it actually did it well because of the way that the lighting and the, the movie itself was structured, mm-hmm. rather than The Sealed Room, which was, I mean, D.W. Griffith just does this, like, overacting uh, as his own style.
1: Yeah, I mean, The Sealed Room is a, really is a stage play. I mean, it cuts between these two locations, but only because they're he can't film both at the same time. You know, if you, you could really picture the sealed room as being totally done on a stage with just a wall in the middle of the stage that these people get sealed up in and these two rooms on either side. Um, whereas Eerie Tales is a movie, and, you know, it, it uses cinematic techniques to create mood and atmosphere and feeling and terror very effectively in a lot of different places. Yeah. All right. Well, then I think entering uh, the list at number two is Unheimlich Geschichten from 1919.
0: Great. Well, if you enjoyed listening to this episode of Scream Scene, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. You can find us on Tumblr at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can find the list of movies we have ranked so far on Tumblr as well, and feel free to submit and ask uh, to suggest a movie for us to watch or to appeal. Our
1: next episode, we will be watching probably the first movie on this list that I legitimately expect other people to have seen, <laughs> uh, which is Das Cabinet des Dr. Caligari ah. uh, by Robert Vina.
0: Yeah, Conrad Veidt.
1: Yes, another Conrad Veidt and a, a major... Major horror classic.
0: Yes, I mean, as long as there's more Conrad in my life, I'm okay.
1: <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys next week.
0: Thanks for listening. Bye.
1: Bye.